This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Ringgit and Cents on BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. You're now listening to Ringgit and Cents, the show that's all about personal finance. I'm Roshan Kanesan. Now, a key tenet of personal finance is the accumulation of wealth towards the achievement of financial freedom. But beyond that, it's also vital to think about how to protect the wealth you build and how to distribute it when you're gone. And to help me get a better understanding of this, I'm speaking with Rajan Devadasan, CEO of RD Wealth Creation and licensed financial planner with Manulife Investment Management Malaysia, Berhad. Rajan, welcome back to Ringan and Sense. Good morning, Roshan. It's wonderful to be back. Rajan, if I've got this right, um, one uh, one way you look at financial planning is by breaking it up into three pillars, wealth accumulation, wealth protection, and wealth distribution to explain the mechanics essentially of building a personal financial plan. Uh, we'll dive into each of those pillars in uh, detail in a bit. But before that, could you just explain um, why you use this uh, three-dimensional model? Um, I like to keep things fairly simple. Um, so... Some might talk about, you know, three pillars of financial planning. Uh, that's a very, very good term. I, I prefer three dimensions because the way I look at it is that if for every individual who's looking to sort out his or her personal financial plan, um, these three dimensions, uh, and because I like to keep things simple, I remember them using the mnemonic PAD, so P-A-D. So wealth protection, wealth accumulation, wealth distribution. Um, in addition to, to just fitting very nicely into the mnemonic, that actually in many ways is the correct order to look at things as well. Uh, usually when people are uh, trying to take care of wealth protection, they begin to look at the importance of financial planning when they're quite young. And so they may not have accumulated a great deal, but you know, our both our filial and then our broader family obligations just continue to grow and grow over time. And it's important that we actually take care and protect the people that we love. So that's why wealth protection is important. Um, Wealth accumulation, in my opinion, and actually in the opinion of every single audience (laughs) that I have spoken to in Malaysia and outside, and I almost always run a poll to see, you know, protection, accumulation, distribution, what do you find most exciting? And in every single case, with no exceptions, the majority has always put its hand up for accumulation. I don't so think it's even a contest, uh, Rajat. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, distribution is, is fascinating in Malaysia because the way that we look at distribution actually varies depending on whether or not we're talking to a Muslim in Malaysia or a non-Muslim. So we can certainly uh, deal with all of that. Let's start with protection then. Um, Is this simply about insurance, Rajan, or is there more to it? It's mainly about insurance. Um, So protection, we protect our wealth using insurance. Um, Let's take a step back and just try and get the foundational basics in place. What exactly is an insurance policy? Each of us as individuals wants to minimize risk in our lives. And uh, there are are many ways to minimize risk, but when it comes to financial risk, one of the smartest things that we can actually do uh, by virtue of the development of the uh, financial services industry is to quite literally transfer risk. And so we minimize personal risk by transferring risk. And how do we transfer the risk? We move it from us individuals to 
large corporations, specifically insurance companies. And insurance companies aren't in business. Uh, they're very, very important, but they aren't in business as charities. Insurance companies are in business to make money for their shareholders, which is as it should be. And so what they do is insurance companies will hire incredibly clever uh, mathematician type people, the actuaries, and they will actually uh, use various iterations of the law of large numbers to be able to figure out what's the specific risk that the insurance company is accepting, taking on when it has a group of 20-year-olds, when it has a group of 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds. And so the insurance company will figure out, okay, we can cover say, 1,000 people or 10,000 people or 100,000 people um, for this specific premium. They might actually work out as the specific average premium, then they may actually, in all fairness, uh, bring it down for those who are, have a lower risk and take it up for those who, who have a higher risk. The premium that we pay on various types of insurance policies is the price that we are forking out for that risk transference mechanism. Essentially, um, what we're doing is for me to transfer the risk for a specific thing or event, I pay the company a certain premium, whether it's health insurance or income replacement should something happen to me or total permanent disability or personal accident for that matter, right? So for example, in a personal accident situation, if I get into an accident and I have personal accident insurance, um, that coverage comes into play, and that risk has not is not being borne by me uh, within the, the the confines of the agreement, but by the insurance company. Yeah, do I have that right, Rajan? Absolutely, spot on. Absolutely right. Um, so the four types of insurance policies that I think everyone should consider having are life insurance, which is really death insurance, but it's very difficult to market something as somber and morbid sounding as death insurance. So they call it life insurance. <laughs> it's really death insurance. Uh, and usually what happens is you get death insurance with a TPD, total permanent disability rider. And so you put it all together. Okay, so life insurance is one. In my opinion, not all Malaysians need life insurance. Uh, most do. I would hazard a guess that maybe 85 to 90% of all uh, adult Malaysians need to have some kind of life insurance policy. Number two, it's uh, CI cover, critical illness cover. And the incidence of critical illnesses, whether there be 36 critical illnesses in your policy or 37 or 38 or 39, um, these things are constantly rearing their head. And so we should have CI cover. I think it is wise for everyone to get a critical illness policy. Um, after that, uh, we want to stop and consider the use of HNS insurance, hospital and surgical. And normally for hospital and surgical cover, um, we know that we've got it because, you know, over the years, especially for those of us who are older, and I'm speaking for myself, not for you, young man. <laughs> um, we go about and we just buy various policies and we forget what we've got and we forgot why we've got it. We just keep paying. And so anyway, when it comes to the HNS cover, um, we should actually have a hospital card that you have on your person. And so if anything happens and you need to go and see a doctor for something expensive or you need to be uh, admitted in hospital, uh, have the HNS card, hospital and surgical cover, 
And so your medical card is the third kind of policy that you really want to have. And I would recommend that everyone has that. And the last type is actually uh, PA, personal accident insurance. Of the four types, the annual premiums on PA, personal accident, are the lowest. Now, this isn't because, again, the insurance companies are being charitable institutions. There's no such thing. <laughs> the reason that the premiums on the PA, personal accident coverage, um, are lowest is because the likelihood of any one of us getting into a truly serious accident um, is very, very low. So those are the four types. I've been speaking with Rajan David Dawson, CEO of RD Wealth Creation. You've been listening to Ring It and Sense on BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Ring It and Sense, the show that's all about personal finance. I'm Roshan Kanesan. This morning, I'm speaking with Rajan David Dawson, licensed financial planner with Men in Life Investment Management Malaysia, Berhad. And we're talking about wealth planning from protection to accumulation to distribution. Now, Rajan, we were talking about wealth protection earlier. But from there, we're going to move on now to wealth accumulation. It really plays a very important connective role between protection and distribution. Could you break that down for us? Not just the act of wealth accumulation, but its relation to protection and distribution at this point? Sure, Roshan. Um, you just have to understand that um, our lives basically run along a time vector, and it only goes in one direction, from younger to older. And when we become working adults, we generally start off with relatively low-paying jobs, but we still have responsibilities, particularly for those of us who uh, believe that filial piety is very, very important. And so um, for everyone, you know, family is important, but I think um, Asians in particular have a very, very um, deep-seated need to make sure that generations above and below are well taken care of. So when we start work, we uh, use generally use insurance um, for wealth protection, as I have pointed out. And ideally what we should do is to exercise um, perhaps the single most important principle of financial planning to build our wealth over a period of god willing decades that single principle is delayed gratification delayed gratification boils down to not giving up things that are bad for things that are good very, very often it means giving up things that are good for things that are great. And I'll tell you for myself, uh, the ability to exercise delayed gratification did not come easily. Um, I've had lots and lots of financial woes. <laughs> I've made plenty of mistakes. I continue to make plenty of mistakes. Um, but, you know, hopefully we all learn as we move along. And so um, as we start work, we want to exercise delayed gratification so that in general, we spend less than we earn. And then if we're wise, we save and invest the difference and we do it for a long time. Now, when we talk about wealth accumulation, there is actually a, I use a mental model. It's a, it's a wealth pyramid. And the wealth pyramid doesn't actually sit on the ground. It actually sits on a granite slab. Again, I'm speaking metaphorically. <laughs> um, it sits on a granite slab, and that granite slab comprises our EBF, our emergency buffer fund. So I think it's wise for people who are just starting out to actually save first before you start investing. 
And then once you get your emergency buffer, and if you are conventionally employed, as uh, Roshan, you are, uh, you should basically have an emergency buffer of between three and six months expenses in cash kept very, very safe. That money can be in a bank savings account, it can be in fixed deposits, it can be in a pure money market fund. For Bhumiputras who have um, ASB or ASB2 accounts, they can keep a part of their emergency buffer there as well. So uh, for someone like me who's um, self-employed, I, I own my own company, I own my own business. Um, the range for the emergency buffer should really be between six and 12 months expenses. So what we want is to build this granite slab. Now it doesn't need to be fully funded. You can basically at least get up to about two months or so. And after that, you can start splitting your excess cash flow so that you keep building your emergency buffer up to whatever the target may be, whether it be four months or eight months or whatever else. But you're also going to start flowing money into what I would call your, your wealth pyramid. And the wealth pyramid itself, theoretically, um, can comprise of four layers. Right at the bottom, you've got savings. Now, because the buffer is savings, people tend to get very confused and think that I'm talking about the same thing. I'm not. Your emergency buffer is pure savings. Then above that sits the pyramid. The bottom layer of the pyramid is more savings. <laughs> above that, you would have investments. Above that, depending on your personality and your skill set, you may have speculations. And right at the apex, I don't advise it, but some people would want to actually gamble. Uh, if you're wise, and if you are going to gamble, I would recommend setting aside only one percentage point of what you have in terms of gross investable and, and savings assets. So below that one percentage point at the apex, there should be nine percentage points more of speculations if you are so inclined. Now, I've actually made quite a lot of money for my own speculations, and I could wax eloquent about those. But the truth of the matter is, I've also lost a lot more money on my speculations. However, when it comes to talking about that, I elect to exercise selective amnesia. <laughs> and I actually find it very easy to remember and talk about the speculations that worked. And the speculations that failed, my brain has just blanked out. So for everybody, if you're going to gamble and you're going to speculate, I would say 1% for gambling, 9% for speculations, 90% of the money should be kept safe in savings and investments. And uh, for those who are wise enough not to gamble, not to speculate, then 100% should be in savings and investments. And um, a key aspect of um, investing of saving is don't put all your eggs in one basket, what we call in investing as diversification. Now, I spend a lot of time talking about the importance of insurance when it comes to wealth protection, but this one attribute of or aspect of wealth accumulation actually leaches across into wealth protection. If we don't put all our eggs in one basket, if we diversify, then we actually do a very, very good job protecting our wealth as well. So it's important to think about. Now, coming back purely to wealth accumulation, um, I recommend that we diversify. And I also recommend that people diversify using three different dimensions of diversification. We should diversify across different asset classes. We should diversify across different geographic regions. And we should diversify use, uh, across a very long timeline 
using investment strategies like dollar cost averaging and value cost averaging. Um, my preference is actually dollar cost averaging because it's much easier to administer. Uh, Rajan, just one question though, when it comes to the pyramid, I just want to clarify, what is the difference between the investing portion and speculation? It's a very good question. And what um, helps us distinguish between our savings, our investments, our speculations and our gambling is actually the risk-reward relationship. Um, many people, when they hear the term risk-reward relationship, they immediately say, oh, what this means is if I take more risk, I'll get more return. Now listen very carefully to what I, I just said that these hypothetical individuals say. I take more risk, so I will make more return. And that's wrong. Mm. The thing that we're certain about is that we take more risk. We can actually calibrate our risk level. Savings, very, very low risk. Investments, higher risk, sort of moderate. Speculations, very high. Gambling, sheer stupidity. Mm. But if you actually win, then it's big. Uh, so basically, it's, it, it boils down to the amount of risk that you're willing to take. Now, as you layer on more and more risk, an investment risk is actually measured statistically by the standard deviation of the price point. As you look at a long-run um, series of data points, and then you draw a, a line of best fit, generally speaking, you'd have a fairly um, uh, slight slope for your savings. Your money grows very, very slowly. For your investments, it'll be a higher slope. For speculations, if they work, it'll be a higher slope. And if it's gambling, if it works, it's a line that goes straight up. But that's only part of it. And that's the return side. But you're taking a risk. Hmm. So let me just hypothetically give you a bunch of numbers, okay? Let's say when it comes to our savings, we have, uh, there's no such thing as 100% risk-free. <laughs> so let's say with real savings, we have a 99.9% .9 chance of everything being okay. And let's say with our investments, we have between um, a 70 and 90% chance of things going well. And with our speculations, let's say that we have a 5% chance of doing well, which means a 95% chance of blowing up. And if we look at our gambling, let's say we have a 0.1% chance of winning, which means a 99.9% .9 chance of losing. So when you take into account, not just what's the probability of my winning, but what's the probability of my losing? You check the failure rate, and then you realize those who are intelligent and who understand that they're going to be saving and investing for decades, um, the, the real money is made just like the tortoise in the story of the tortoise and the hare. Slow and steady wins the race. Distribution is not a topic people like talking about because it often comes off morbid. But if you don't deal with it now, uh, you can't really deal with it when it's needed, right? Let's say you pass on, there's no one, you, you can't be there to sort that out. So what are the key components you think about when we talk about wealth distribution? It's very important to understand that when it comes to distribution, the way things work out for Muslims and non-Muslims is very, very different. If a Muslim dies without a Muslim will, which is called a wasiyat, then the full distribution is taken care of by fara'id, the Sharia distribution law. And uh, if a Muslim feels that, you know, I want to have some say in how the assets get distributed after his or her death, then at best, he or she can put together a Muslim will called a wasiyat, and the wasiyat can only take care of one-third of assets. 
the remaining two-thirds must be distributed in accordance to Paraid. Now, for those of us who are non-Muslim, if you die without a will, uh, the Distribution Act kicks in. And uh, if that's the case, you've got to ask yourself, well, who knows my wishes better? The Malaysian government or me? And I think that question answers itself. And because it answers itself, I think uh, we owe it to ourselves, we owe it to our legacy, and more importantly, most importantly, we owe it to the people that we love. And so I would recommend that people write a will. That's base level. For those who have very young children and a fair amount of money, they may also want to possibly set up a trust. And ironically, for those who are older and who have adult children whom they do not trust, the solution may actually be the establishment of a legal trust. But I think it's only a real minority in Malaysia that needs to think about setting up a trust, generally wealthier individuals. But when it comes to um, writing a will as an individual, um, there are four things that you must take care of, uh, assuming that you are married and you have kids. So first thing I recommend is that both spouses, husband and wife, write or rewrite their wills together so that when they think about it, everything interlocks. Nothing falls through the cracks. And before you actually sit down with a professional will writer or a lawyer, I recommend that people think through four scenarios. Number one, husband dies. Number two, wife dies. Number three, husband and wife die together. Number four, common tragedy, husband, wife, all children die. It's a terrible thing. It's actually one of the most difficult conversations that I have to uh, engage in as a licensed financial planner. But I would be remiss if I don't bring that topic up and if I don't carry my clients through. But I, because there's so much to do, protection, accumulation, mm. distribution, and everyone is far more focused on accumulation, which is understandable. It is the it is the most freeing, it is the most optimistic of the options. Um, I let my clients decide the correct order. And so typically when we get to distribution, it's you know fairly late down the, down the road. Um, but it, it does have to be addressed. I hope this helps. It does, it does, Rajan. And uh, maybe we could end on this note then. Um, what are the key elements to writing a will, uh, a valid will in Malaysia? Make sure that you have two witnesses. Uh, make sure the witnesses are... I guess, reasonably young, so it's unlikely that they will predecease you and that they are um, uh, you know, fairly easy to contact, so make sure you have your, their numbers and their email addresses, etc. cetera. Um, a, a lot of people are inclined to go to lawyers, and lawyers are more than capable of writing wills. However, I have heard um, horror stories of some wills written by lawyers where a crucial component called the residuary clause was actually left out. Now, the residuary clause states that, you know, uh, you have the whole will and then you say, okay, to person A, I give asset one, to person B, I give asset two, etc., etc. But none of us can actually account for everything that we have. Therefore, you must have the residuary clause which says, and for everything else not covered in this will, it must go to. Now, if you die without the will, what you need to do is go to court, or not you, but <laughs> uh, the people that, that who are left behind would have to go to court and you have to get a letter of administration, and that actually takes a bit of time. Mm -hmm. If you die with a will, you get a grant of probate, and that whole process is faster. And um, what you want to do is to make sure that 
when you are thinking about who is going to uh, be the executor of your will. That's because you have a will, so it's granted probate, so you have an executor. Uh, it's wise to also set up a co-executor. My advice to my clients is, first choice, it might be wise for you to actually choose a corporate executor. Because even if you've got someone that you trust a great deal to administer stuff, he or she may be grieving, or I'm sure will be grieving because you've passed on, and more likely will actually not have the skill set available mm. to be able to get things done. So I actually recommend using a corporate executive, uh, but then you can also name other people to, to advise them, etc. And when it comes to the, the witnesses of the will, you got to have two and they can't be beneficiaries, correct? That's right. All right, uh, Rajan, on that note, uh, thank you so much for your time today. It's always a pleasure speaking with you and uh, uh, stay safe and take care. Right. Thank you so much, Roshan. See you soon, I hope. Bye-bye. I was speaking with Rajan Devadasan, CEO of RD Wealth Creation and Licensed Financial Planner with Manulife Investment Management in Malaysia, Berhat. And you've been listening to Ringgit and Sense, the show that's all about personal finance. I'm Roshan Kanisan for BFM 89.9. Ringgit and Sense on BFM 89.9, the business station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.